Well, I'm sure you noticed, I don't know how you couldn't, but 90s nostalgia is in full swing right now. Just think the last Super Bowl halftime show with Snoop Dogg and Dre and Eminem or uh, Netflix shows like Full House Revival, Bel Air, a sequel, uh, sequel to Fresh Prince is dropping. And even recently, uh, Netflix announced another new show uh, from the 90s that is coming back this year, and that is That 90s Show. Now, if you were a 90s kid like me, you remember the show That 70s Show. It aired in 1998 on Fox, and it was about kids and Wisconsin, their life in the 70s. Well, now the spinoff is going to be about kids in Wisconsin and their life in the 90s. And what's hilarious to me is that a lot of people are saying, man, it is way too soon for a 90s nostalgia show. And here's the thing. You ready? You're not going to believe this. That 70s show was closer to the 70s than the 90s show will be to the 90s. How crazy is that? Like, are you feeling old yet? Because I know when I heard that, I am. Uh, but man, one of the things I can't wait to see them make fun of in that 90s show, one of the things that I remember from the 90s that was one of the most 90s thing ever is how we tried to make everything extreme. And not just extreme like with an EX, but usually just with a capital X, make it extreme. Where we had extreme gushers and extreme warheads in our candy. We had extreme drinks like Mountain Dew Extreme. Extreme Surge, and get this, 7-Eleven, not just the big gulps, you remember these? The Extreme Gulps. We had extreme music, we had extreme games, we had extreme clothes and comics, but maybe the thing that has actually lasted out of all that is our extreme sports, the X Games, child of the 90s. And uh, thinking about that, you know, the profit that we're looking at today in our Minor Profit series probably would have fit in really well in the 90s because he was very extreme. And that is Zephaniah. Zephaniah was an extreme prophet. If you've been following with us the last couple of weeks, you know that we talked about Amos two weeks ago and how Amos showed us the fierceness of the Lord's judgment against sin. And then last week we looked at Habakkuk and we saw the faithful love of God and how it endures even though life circumstances aren't going our way. Well, Zephaniah is so extreme that he leans more into God's justice than Amos and he leans more into God's love than Habakkuk. He's extreme on both ends of the spectrum. And so what I want to do today as we kind of look at that is walk down that road of Zephaniah, a road that ultimately leads to what Zephaniah is most extreme on, and that is extreme restoration. Zephaniah shows us a restoration so overwhelming that it is hard to comprehend. So if you got your Bibles this morning, go with me to Zephaniah. We're going to start in chapter 1. And what we're going to look at is that road to restoration that Zephaniah uh, lays out. It's a restoration of things that the people of God had lost. It's a restoration of things that they would lose in the future. And really it's a restoration so extreme that it restores things they never even had in the first place. And I think one of the reasons that we want to lean into that idea of restoration is because these pieces that Zephaniah shows us on this road to restoration are really pieces on the road to any restoration that we want to see. Maybe you in your family need to see some restoration take place in some relationships. Maybe in your marriage you need to see restoration take place. I don't know where you need to see it, but what's neat is Zephaniah is going to show us specifically 
a road to restoration with our relationship with the Lord, but steps along this process also are steps in restoration in any relationship that we have. So we're going to kind of walk through Zephaniah chapter 1 through 3 and look at this road to restoration and what this restoration is. And I think if it's kind of, okay, I get it, but not, it'll, you'll catch up as we go along. You'll see um, exactly what we're talking about. So let, let's just jump in, right? Zephaniah chapter 1. Zephaniah chapter 1 uh, reminds us, as we've seen time and time again in the minor prophets, that God takes sin seriously. And Zephaniah doesn't shy away from this. Again, he's extreme. He's going to show us how extremely serious God is about sin. And so for almost all of chapter 1, Zephaniah is going to talk about the day of the Lord. Now, if you grew up in church, maybe you sang songs about the day of the Lord. Maybe you sang the song, what a day that will be. Well, that's not the day that Zephaniah sees. It's not a day of joy. It's not a day of triumph. It is a day of lament. It is a day of destruction. It is a day of desolation. You want to hear extreme language? Lean into this. Look at the first uh, beginning part of the description of this day found in verse 2. And then we'll skip and look at the last two verses starting in verse 17. So Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 2. Look at how he, he begins the description of this day of the Lord. He says, I will completely sweep away everything from the face of the earth. This is the Lord's declaration. What, what a start to this book. I know you're blessed from reading it, right? Look down at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 17. God says again, I will bring distress on mankind, and they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Their silver and their gold will be unable to rescue them on the day of the Lord's wrath. The whole earth will be consumed by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete, yes, a horrifying end of all the inhabitants of the earth. You want to see extreme language? Here it is, Zephaniah, right at home in the 90s. This is extreme. But it's also something that we should pay attention to, right? This may be extreme language, but it's depicting a real specific day in the future that is coming when the God of creation is going to pour out His judgment on sin on the world. And maybe you're thinking this morning, Chip, I thought you were saying that we're going to be talking about restoration and what that looks like. Well, what you have to see here, what I don't want you to miss, is that the recognition of sin and the judgment that sin deserves is the first step on that road to restoration. Now that may not seem to make a lot of sense until you think about it, but when you think about it, it's obvious. For restoration to occur, we've got to see the need for it, right? Like this is true in any broken relationship that you have, family, friends, spouse, children, whatever. If you have a broken relationship and you see it's broken, you'll see the need for restoration. But until you see that it's broken, you won't feel a need for that relationship to be restored. If that's true of our earthly relationships, how much more true is it of our heavenly relationship? We will never see our relationship with God restored to the place that He intends until we see that it has been irreparably broken by our sin. Man. 
I wish you could get that this morning. See, you got to consider that there's going to be no seeking after grace where there is no sense in sin. I could preach till I'm hoarse, but you good people who've never sinned, who've never broken the law, you're not guilty of anything, right? You think that out of a nicety toward religion that we are all sinners, that yes, I get that, but you don't mean it in your heart of hearts. You never ask for grace because you have no sense of shame or guilt. You never seek after mercy because you've never pleaded guilty. I wish that you would feel your sins and that you knew your need for forgiveness. For only then would you see yourself in such a condition that the free, rich, sovereign grace of God is your only hope of salvation. Now, that's not me. That, that, that's, that's a paraphrase of a quote of one of my favorite pastors, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. But here's what I want you to get. That's true of people today, and it was true of people when he preached back in the 1800s. One of the reasons that we are not restored in our relationship with God is because we don't see our sin. We don't see ourselves as sinners. We don't acknowledge the penalty that our sin deserves. And I love what Spurgeon says. Let me read you specifically his words. He says, you are such kind people that out of compliment to religion, you say, yes, we are sinners. We are all sinners. But you know in your heart of hearts, you do not mean it. See, I think that's where we're at. When I say that we are all sinners, you lean in and you say, yeah, Chip, absolutely. I believe that. But when we talk about your sin, that gets a whole lot more of a gray area, right? Now, here's what I wonder. How many people... How many even of you who who are watching this today are still lost in your sin, living apart from a saving relationship with Jesus because you've never really seen your need for that saving relationship with Jesus? By nature of who you were born to, the church that your grandma attended, the fact that you live in America and you vote a certain way, you think that that makes you by birth a Christian. There is no such thing. You have to see the need for your sin. Your relationship with God will never be restored until you see that you're a sinner deserving of judgment and Jesus is your only hope of restoration. But the good news is, is that when you see that sin, when you see your brokenness, when you see the judgment that that sin deserves, you're given a chance to repent of it and to seek the Lord. Zephaniah's message takes a turn in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 1, this is what Zephaniah says. Gather yourselves together. Gather together, undesirable nation, before the decree takes effect and the day passes like chaff. Before the burning of the Lord's anger overtakes you, before the day of the Lord's anger overtakes you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who carry out what He commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be concealed on the day of the Lord's anger. So what Zephaniah is describing here is an invitation of the Lord to repentance. When you see your sin and the judgment that sin rightly deserves, you are offered a chance to turn from it and to seek the Lord. And I want you to notice in those verses we just read the central role that humility plays in that. That repentance has to be born 
of a heart that has been humbled. It's probably fair to say that more than anything else, it is our selfish pride that keeps us from seeking the Lord in true repentance. Now, I think there's another piece there. I think that another piece we need to understand about repentance, especially if you grew up in church circles, is that repentance is more than just a feeling. I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of equating repentance with the idea of feeling sorry about something. And yes, 100%, repentance involves that feeling of sorrow, that feeling sorry. But it is so much more than that. Listen to me, restoration doesn't come just because you feel sorry about it. It's not enough to say, oh man, I feel bad that this relationship has been broken. And as a matter of fact, that feeling sorry about something can be really tricky because sometimes we don't know our own heart or our own emotions well enough to know if that feeling is that we're truly sorry for the brokenness or we're just sorry we got caught. Are we sorry about our sin or are we sorry that we have to suffer the consequences of our sin? See, that's why I think Zephaniah is so, so important here because it shows us that, that repentance is not just a feeling of sorry, but repentance is an action. He says three times, seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek humility, seek righteousness. And so I think the point is, yes, there's this feeling of being sorry. There's this feeling of sorrow over sin, but that feeling has to drive us to action. It has to drive us to seek the Lord. And to take it even further, it doesn't drive us to a one-time action. Now, don't get me wrong. When you're forgiven, you're forgiven. But repentance in the life of a believer is not a one-time deal. It is an ongoing posture. When we are humbled by our sin and the judgment we deserve, when we are humbled by the holiness of the God of the universe who judges that sin, that humility leads to an ongoing posture of repentance in the life of the believer. It is not for us to just repent and move on. We must live in that posture of repentance and humility before the Lord, turning from our sin and trusting Him in obedience. Now, I think it's easy to think that here after repentance, we jump straight to restoration, right? Like, I see the sin, I see the brokenness, I see the repentance, I'm sorry, and I'm going to turn and seek the Lord. So then, boom, restoration. But there's another piece missing here. And that piece missing is judgment. Now you're saying, whoa, 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 Chip, whoa. If I repent, there is no judgment. Not, not exactly. See, for re restoration to take place in any relationship... There's a price that must be paid and consequences that must be dealt with. Just think about it like this. If you were to come over to my house and you got really excited about something we were talking about and slung your cell phone across the room and it hit my TV and busted my TV, you could be sorry. You could be genuinely sorry. You could be 
deeply sorry. But no matter how sorry you are, the Parker family's still out of TV until you buy a new one or I buy a new one. Why? Because there is a price that must be paid. There are consequences that must be dealt with to that brokenness. And see, here is where restoration in our relationship with others and restoration in our relationship with Jesus begin to diverge down two different paths. Because when you seek restoration in your relationship with others, you can repent of what you've done wrong, but there is still a period of having to sort through the consequences of that before full restoration takes place. For instance, as I've talked with couples before who have dealt with marital issues, you don't go from, I'm sorry, to perfect, healthy marriage overnight. There's a road there. Actions you take ongoing lead to that place. But here's what's so amazing about the gospel. The moment that you truly repent of your sin, the moment that you turn from that sin and seek Jesus asking for his forgiveness, in that moment you are forgiven and that relationship is restored. But we can't forget how. It's not because God waves away the judgment, but it is because Jesus has taken that judgment for us. See, there are consequences to our actions, but in our relationship with God, those consequences are absorbed by Jesus when we repent of our sin and put our faith in Him. Yes, sin demands judgment, but repentance is the means by which that judgment is averted to and absorbed by Jesus. His death pays the debt that our sin owed so that we might be made free and experience restoration in that relationship with our Heavenly Father. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. Is that... God still judges sin, but he judged it in the person of Jesus. That's why he went to the cross, so that on the cross he might absorb the full wrath of God that our sin deserved, so much so that those who trust him have none left over for them. So yes, we see our sin, we turn from our sin, judgment still comes, but when we turn from our sin, that judgment goes to Jesus, not us. And as children of God, the restoration that we experience on the other side of that repentance is absolutely astounding. The restoration that we talk about here, Zephaniah begins talking about at the end of chapter 3 all the way back in verse 9. I'd encourage you to take some time today, go read that. But for our time together today, let's jump down to chapter 3 verse 14. Let's look at how Zephaniah describes this, rest, this restoration. He says, Sing for joy, daughter Zion. Shout loudly, Israel. Be glad and celebrate all your, with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has removed your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The King of Israel, the Lord, is among you. You need no longer fear harm. On that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will delight in you with singing. 
I will gather those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. They will be a tribute from you and a reproach on her. Yes, at that time I will deal with all who oppress you. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. At that time I will bring you back. Yes, at that time I will gather you. I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. The Lord has spoken. What an extreme picture of restoration. The message of Zephaniah is clear. God's love restores. Everything that sin broke, God is going to restore. What does this restoration look like? Just really, really quickly, we read from verses 9, if you go back through the end of the chapter, that all the peoples of the earth will call on the name of the Lord and serve Him, that shame and pride are going to be removed from God's people, that fear will be removed from God's people, that our King Jesus will live among us, and that we will be gathered together under the protection and prosperity of King Jesus here on earth. Wow. What restoration. What an extreme, right? These promises at the end of chapter 3... I hope for you as they are for me are, are really just overwhelming, right? Like, like, how can this be? Did you catch that Zephaniah says that the Lord will sing over us? Can you imagine God being so pleased in you, in his people, in our relationship that he sings? But yet, that's exactly what they are. And so I think here's the point I want you to see in Zephaniah is that through Christ, the restoration that we gain is going to be greater than what was broken by sin to begin with. The restoration that we experience is going to be greater than the brokenness we caused. That seems crazy, right? But yet Paul echoes that theme. Later on in the New Testament, while writing to the church in Rome, Paul says this in Romans 5.20, he says... The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. I love that idea there, right? That where sin multiplies, grace multiplies even more. Again, my favorite preacher, Charles Spurgeon, commenting on that verse says this. He says, Beloved, such a thing as fellowship with Christ and his sufferings could not have been known to Adam in paradise. He could not have known what it is to be dead and to have his life hid with Christ in God. Blessed be his name, our Lord Jesus Christ can say, I restored that which I took not away. He restored more than was ever taken from us. For he hath made us to be partakers of the divine nature. And in his own person, he has placed us at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Inasmuch as the dominion of the Lord Jesus is more glorious than that of the unfallen Adam, manhood is now more great and glorious than before the fall. Grace has so much more abounded that in Jesus we have gained more than in Adam we lost. Our paradise regained is far more glorious than our paradise lost. Look, that's, that's what makes grace so amazing. That's what makes our hearts sing. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. What Spurgeon is saying is that in Jesus, God has restored to us more than we lost when Adam sinned and plunged the world into brokenness. Just think about it, right? 
Adam, before the world was broken by sin, was a friend of God. And yet now, through Christ, you and I are called sons and daughters of God. Adam would have God come and walk and visit him in the Garden of Eden. Now, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, lives in us who know Christ, and one day Jesus will physically dwell among us. Or how about this? Through sacrifices in the Old Testament, sins were wiped away once a year, but now through Jesus, our sins are wiped away once and for all, and on top of that, we are gifted His perfect righteousness. See, Spurgeon had it right. Paul nailed it. Zephaniah understood that through Jesus we gain more than sin ever took away. That is the restoration that Zephaniah is pointing us to. A restoration that comes from being made right with God through Jesus Christ. So amazing. But here's the question. Where are you on that road to restoration? See, I think it's easy to assume that we are all at the end of that road. But if we're being honest with ourselves, I think deep in our hearts, we know we're not. Maybe right now you're at the beginning of that road. You need to ask yourself, have you seen and acknowledged your own sinfulness and the judgment that you rightly deserve? Or do you consider yourself a good person, a good American? You come to church and you pray, so if you try hard enough, one day you'll be in heaven. Maybe you need to start this road by seeing your sin and the judgment it deserves for the very first time. Maybe you should ask yourself, have you truly repented of your sin and developed an ongoing posture of humble repentance? Or maybe instead of that, you think back and say, no, I... I really just prayed a half-hearted prayer that my Sunday school teacher told me to because I felt guilty. You've never experienced that step of true repentance. Maybe you have repented of your sin, but you've never truly understood what Jesus actually accomplished for you on the cross by taking the judgment of God that your sin deserved. Or maybe you have just yet to begin to live in the riches of the restoration that is yours in Jesus. I don't know where you're at on that road, but I know that you're somewhere. And I would really encourage you to take some time and to think through that, pray through that. We have people online right now who would be happy to help walk you through some of that. But what I want for you is at the end of this road, that you are able to live in the full, rich, extreme restoration uh, with God that is possible through Jesus. See, I'm reminded of a story I heard as a teenager in church, and I'll be honest with you, I don't know that it's true. It's a story a preacher told, but I think it makes a great point. The story is of a former slave who had a great relationship with his slave owner. So much so that the slave owner understood it was wrong for him to own this slave and he freed him. And they were separated for years and when the former slave owner passed away, he, out of love and out of a, a sense of obligation, left his entire fortune 
to this former slave. The owner had no children, so he left all that he had to this slave. And uh, the, the former slave was notified, and, and yet nothing happened. For a year or so, this newly freed slave never touched any of the property, any of the resources, any of the money that had been left to him. And so a representative, it said, from the bank goes and finds this former slave and says, hey, do you know that this happened? Oh, yes, I, I know that I was left in all this and I was inherited. He said, well, then why haven't you used any of it? Don't you need it? And the, the former slave, this newly freed man, says, well... I mean, do you think it'd be okay if I got enough to go buy some cornmeal? See, this guy had no idea what it meant to live free and the riches that were now his. And when I heard that story, whether true or not, it makes a fantastic point. How many of us who have come to the place of knowing Jesus as our Savior, putting our faith in Him, turning from our sin, are still figuring out how we live in this new life? That we can live in a restoration greater than what sin took for us in the first place. And I think that comes because we don't understand what we've been given in Jesus, much less how to live in it. So I hope today, maybe hearing Zephaniah, you'll lean into that a little bit more. You'll understand a little better what Jesus has done for you, and you'll understand exactly what you have been given through Him. And as you understand that, that you'll be able to live in it. Because man, Spurgeon nailed it, didn't he? Jesus says, I have given what I've not taken away. What we have in Christ is more than we could ever imagine. Now we just have to learn to live in it. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for this time today to, to look at this amazing little book of Zephaniah. And God, I pray for those who were on the road to restoration, those who need to see their sin, acknowledge it, those who need to turn from it, and those who just need to understand a little more deeply what it is they've been forgiven of and what it is they've been gifted through Jesus. And so God, I pray that as our understanding of that grows, that our walk with you would grow closer and that we would learn to live in the depth and the width, that we would learn to live in the richness and the fullness of the restoration we've been given through Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.